The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of God. Good morning. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, first we just want to thank you for weaving our stories together today. Some of us, you've woven our stories together for years, and we hope you will for years to come. Well, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have purposes, that this isn't all accidental. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience all the way to the cross. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that you are a good shepherd and you will see us through all the way to the end. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open your word for us this morning. We pray that you would use it to give us courage and conviction, that you would illuminate the path before us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you may have been catching on, the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better than anything or anyone that we could live for. And so, we must hold on to him by trusting him at all costs. He is that priceless treasure that we're willing to discard everything in order to obtain. So the prize is great, but the dangers that could potentially keep us from that prize are also great. And when we think about holding on to the very end, enduring to the end, there are at least a few verses that I think should haunt every Christian. One is 1 John 2.19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So he's describing people who prove that they are opposed to Christ because they reject his church. Now, it's not talking about people who simply move their membership to another biblical church for healthy reasons. It's talking about people who walk away from sound local churches altogether. They don't want to be held up to the standard of God's word. They don't want the light that comes from authentic, caring community. They don't want the Holy Spirit through his people putting limits on their influence or their lifestyle or their way of expressing themselves. So there's often a a flashy arrogance about these people who decide that they just can't endure any longer among the people of God. Another passage about not enduring is the parable of the soils. In Luke chapter 8, we see that some who have received the word of God will fall away because the life that seemed to be emerging in them is either unrooted by persecution or it's choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And so these folks don't endure because the obstacles or the distractions are just too great. And then 
the most haunting of all, at least for me, is Matthew 7.22, which says that on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's more than possible to convince others that we are enduring in the faith, to convince ourselves even that we're enduring in the faith, and even to perform notable ministry because of our association with the people of God, and yet to actually not have been enduring in working for the glory of God, but instead be found to have only been working for our own glory. That's terrifying. So the journey of faith is strewn with landmines, and it's going to take a miracle of God for us to make it all the way to the end. Well, where does that leave us? We, we can't exactly just achieve a miracle for ourselves. We are solely dependent upon the mercy of God. But if we realize that, well, that's actually just the starting place we need. And once we realize that, then we will indeed find ourselves doing certain things as his miracle takes root in us. And so our verses for this morning show that miracle of faith in action. And we have a brief glimpse here into how faith operates, how faith thinks, what fuels it. So as we seek to know the path to persevering in saving faith this morning, our passage gets after the what and also the why and also a lot about the how. What is endurance in the faith? Why do we endure in the faith? How do we go about enduring in the faith? So first, what is persevering in faith? We're told here that it's like a race on a course that has been set out for us by God. And that's no throwaway observation that this is a a race course set out for us by God. So it's not ours for the choosing. It's marked already. Many Christians spend like way too much time seeking certainty of, of what's in the future instead of just focusing on running around the curve that's set before them. But persevering means that we run with endurance all the way to the end of the course. You can devote your whole life to training, to athletic training, and you can, you know, when you get to the big event, you can run a great seven-eighths of the race. But then if you just kind of walk off the course before the finish line, it was all for nothing. So we see that the author is using, like, athletic imagery here. Um, The original recipients of this letter were... um, you know, they likely lived in a major city, and they were familiar with the culture surrounding the Panhellenic Games. Those uh, are the ancient precursors to our modern Olympic Games. So if you think about running races in the Olympics, that, that gets you into this imagery. Or if you have experiences on a track team or a cross-country team, you can tap into that. Or if you've seen chariots of fire, whatever you need to do. Um, but whenever a group of people just start running... Some people quit early on because they get bad cramps or their lungs just can't seem to handle the exertion. And so, um, you know, that might be akin to people who just show up at church for a while. Maybe they use language about deciding to follow Christ, but then before long their life is back looking exactly as it did before they encountered the gospel. Some people, on the other hand, will get well into the race, and then they'll quit when they get injured. You know, back when I was running track, there were still some schools that had cinder tracks. And if you, if, you, if you fell on those, I mean, it could really 
mess up your leg bad. And when that happened to some kids, they just walk off. Um, and then, you know, there's other ways you can get injured. You can totally biff it on a hurdle or um, someone else's mistake. If the race is tight, they can trip up, they can fall across your lane, and then you're down too. So obviously we don't want to stretch the running analogy too much, but the point is that there are many unique challenges that we may face in the midst of any athletic event. You can't predict exactly how it's going to go. Um, in the words of that great sage, Dr. Seuss, he says, I, I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. And in fact, they're not only possible, but they're promised to us by Jesus, right? No one has a race without unexpected challenges. Now, some bang-ups are of our own making. Like, we ignored God's word just straight up, and it came back to bite us. Last week, we talked about how even if we have massive lapses of faith, no excuse, just plain, ugly disobedience to God, your faith has only failed if you call it quits there. But if you repent and you keep trusting in the one who may even be letting you experience some of the natural consequences of your own sin, if you press in and you keep trusting him for the long haul, then even that failure of yours that you've brought into the light, that will be used for redemptive purposes. Other bang-ups are due to just conditions on the course. Financial crises, personal sickness and disease, freak tragedies, the death of loved ones. How are you going to respond when you're tested in those ways? Now, endurance doesn't mean that you're not winded. You're not disheartened by those things. Athletes can get disheartened in the midst of events. But it does mean that you keep going. <clears throat> you keep trusting God to provide everything you need. And still other bang-ups involve others crashing into you, something done to you that threatens to knock you out of the race, some form of abuse maybe, or a spouse who is unfaithful and abandons you, or injustice at work, or scams or contrived lawsuits that leave you vulnerable. Whenever in life it feels like we have enemies, if you feel that way, like, I, I have enemies, there's also a temptation present to kind of sulk in that, and to hold God responsible for not living up to your standards for the life on earth that you always wanted. But I just want you to know that giving into that would be the height of foolishness. So let's run with endurance. Even when, the, even when enemies are tumbling into us. Now there's another form that lack of endurance takes. And this one I don't think you see that often in actual running races, but it happens in the race of faith all the time. That's when someone was running well, and then they just grow weary, or they just grow cold. They, they seem disengaged. They just stop, and a lot of times it's really close to the finish line. Apathy. That's one of the strongest temptations as we get older. Now, these Christians, there, there are many people who, who have identified as Christians their whole lives. And if you force them to take a survey, they would probably still mark all the right answers. But there's no fruit of righteousness in their lives. Their lives are basically marked by just numbing themselves with meaningless and predictable pleasures. And the depth and the trust in their relationships is shrinking, not growing. 
Are people like this actually Christians? Only God knows. There's certainly no grounds for feeling assurance about it. Now, I have great compassion for people who struggle with apathy. Often they've witnessed horrific things, and so they numb themselves and they keep their distance from eternal things because there's a pain associated with the question of where was God in the midst of these circumstances? Common situations uh, when this happens is maybe these people were totally plugged into church. They love their church, and then it all blew up in a scandal. Or maybe they've had a child die. Or maybe some sort of lifelong burden has been placed on them that they never expected to have to carry. Or maybe someone they loved has walked away from the faith. And these jarring experiences can leave us struggling to keep going in the faith ourselves or sometimes to care about anything at all. Some of you older folks in the room know all too well what I'm talking about. And sometimes you may feel like you've seen enough of life. In fact, one of the beautiful things about this church that, that I just love is um, there are so many people who have had exactly these sorts of circumstances, and yet you are fully engaged. You're choosing to move forward. You're not just numbing yourselves. You dare to keep trusting God, knowing that you don't see the whole story. And the story isn't finished. And you know that God wants your whole person. He wants your emotions and your memories and your regrets, your heartache. And I love you for that. As you keep pressing in to know and to follow Christ, you're an inspiration to all of us. And we honor you. And if you keep on this trajectory, most importantly, he will honor you on that day. So this is what endurance looks like. Just keep going. Just keep trusting. Don't change paths. Don't shut down. Know your God. Talk to your God. Lean into your God. All the way to the bitter end. The life of faith is a race that must be run with endurance. But why do we run with endurance? What motivates us? One answer is here for us right in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... We know that it's possible to complete this race. We know that this race is the most important thing we can do. Why? Because it's been testified to us. Not just by one witness, but by so great a cloud of witnesses. We run because they have convinced us that it's worth it. And most directly, the therefore refers back to that long list of people in chapter 11 that we looked at for a number of weeks We are surrounded by them, we're told, and people like them. It's amazing to think that those who have already finished the race have a stake in our completion of it. They're invested in our success. Like chapter 11, verse 40 said that apart from us, their stories aren't complete. So one day when we show up in glory, they're not going to be like, who are you? They're going to say, you did it. Wow, what a gripping story of God's grace you've lived. We're going to celebrate together. And so whenever we feel all alone in our struggles, we should look for Christian community, not only among the living, but also among the dead. That, that sounds creepy. I don't mean it in a creepy way. What I mean is remember the godly people who have gone before you and imitate their way of life. And also, you know, you can, you can read the writings and the biographies of theologians or missionaries or just normal godly people of the past. That's great motivation. 
You can be inspired by their victories of faith. You can learn from their mistakes. I think it'd be amazing if we all had friends from past centuries and we were gaining insight and courage from their stories. So these witnesses are pictured like a crowd that surrounds us, like they're, they're seated in a, a coliseum. We're running around in a coliseum, and, and they're all in stands cheering us on, and we know it's possible. We know that they, they are there. They are witnesses because they have inherited eternal life. It's not that they were witnesses. They are witnesses. If you remember, Jesus reminded the scribes that at the burning bush, God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And back in chapter 11, we're told that through his faith, Abel still speaks. So we live in the company of those who have finished the race. They have reached the prize. They are still speaking. It's like, um, it's like Michael Jordan playing with Bill Russell in the stands, or, or maybe Zach Levine playing with Michael Jordan in the stands. Um, At an athletic event, like the very presence of people who have done this before, who have been great before, who have finished, their presence reminds you that, hey, this means something. And hey, this is possible. So we run because we've been told of the goodness of running to the end. Yes, by the examples of of all these saints that we saw in chapter 11 who have gone before us. But in another sense, those saints in chapter 11, they're mentioned there to remind us of really everything in the book of Hebrews before that. So the figures in chapter 11 remind us of all that, that points us to faith in Christ. We have, you know, you look back to chapter 1 and just move through the book. We have as testimony the prophets. We have the apostles. We have the words of Jesus himself. We have the works of angels. We have the wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have a typology of Moses and Melchizedek and the sacrificial system and the Sabbath and the temple. And yes, all the stories in that hall of faith in in chapter 11. So all of these elements and all these people together serve as witnesses to us that this is the uniquely great and final salvation. What's placed before us today is life or death, and therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The author of Hebrews, he's really surveyed his whole Bible, all of redemptive history, and he's done that because that's what we need to do. We need all of it. We need to hear the testimony of the goodness and power and sufficiency of Jesus Christ and life in him from all of this book. That's why we keep this book close to us. We explore every corner of this because we need it if we're going to endure to the end. So faith in Christ is a race that's marked out for us by God that we must run with endurance. And we run because we have heard and we have believed this great cloud of witnesses, especially those represented for us in this divine book. But how? How are we going to run with endurance? How do we practically accomplish it when there's so much set against us in this race? Our verses give us two essential strategies. And these aren't optional strategies. These are strategies that if you don't do them, like, you're going to spiritually die. The first is, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, some of you may know that in the ancient Panhellenic games, the runners actually ran naked. The fashion of the day was togas, you know. 
certainly not very aerodynamic and long. You could easily trip up. So they had to strip down and, and lay aside the weight and the trouble of that clothing. And similarly, in our race of faith, we're told to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. It's a metaphor, okay? Um, why does it say every weight and sin? Is there weight that we need to lay aside that's not sin? Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, these are usually good things, the good things that can be distractions in our life and make us feel too much at home here in this world. The good things that, the, the place they occupy in our hearts, if we're not careful, it starts to edge out the place that should only be for God alone. The good things that, if we're not careful, inhibit the life that he has for us. And so then our heart posture in just being preoccupied, that can turn into sin, into a sin of idolatry. So laying aside weights has to do with choosing what's best, not just what's good. It has to do with prioritization. For example, a very common way that good Christian people end up running a poor race is by prioritizing their families over God. But Jesus is very clear that if we don't put him first, even above father and mother and spouse and children and brothers and sisters, then we can't be his disciples. Now, I'm not talking about like, you know, spending 40 hours a week in, you know, ministry activities. If, if your work of ministry is causing you to like straight up neglect your family, then you need to reassess that supposed calling on your life, okay? Um, but apart from like neglect of your family, I'm talking about normal participation in the local church, just not putting limits on our devotion to God. So if family is getting in the way of that, if we keep finding ourselves choosing, you know, I'd rather, rather be with my family, rather do this with my family, neglecting normal church life, normal obligations, um, devotion to God, personal time with God, well, we'd better check ourselves. Family itself isn't the weight that we need to set aside. Family is a good gift, but our habit of making the family experience central, that has to be cast aside because God alone must be the sun around which even the biggest planet of family rotates in orbit. So weights to cast aside could be unhelpful or poorly oriented relationships, but weights could also be interests or hobbies or ambitions, habits, preoccupations. I remember I had a, a seminary professor who, he said from a very young age, there were two great passions in his life, the Bible and fly fishing. And I think that that dual obsession may have led him, that's why he went to Scotland to do his PhD, where the fly fishing abounds. But somewhere along the lines, as a Bible scholar and writer and researcher, he came to the conclusion, I just can't be about both of these things at the same time. He was he's great at fly fishing, but regrettably, it was a weight that he had to cast aside. It wasn't a sin, but life is short and energy is limited. And having a foot in each of those worlds only distracted him from the scholarly work that he, he was convinced God wanted him to dedicate his life to. Now, couldn't he still, like, do a, a fishing vacation once a year? Sure, he's free to. But he doesn't. 
because he's noticed that it only seems to open doors in, in his mind that make it harder for him to focus. So in an attempt to run the best race possible, he's prayerfully laid aside that certain weight that's specific to him. And he can do that joyfully because he really does believe in the life to come. So laying aside weights is mentioned, but then the emphasis is really on the sin which clings so closely. And this is describing the reality of indwelling sin. Even though we've been rescued from the guilt and the punishment of sin, even though we have access to power over sin, we still do live in the presence of sin. And it's going to be a hard slog for the rest of our lives to be free of it. It's like we're hiking in in waders through a swamp. That's the imagery that pops into my mind. Romans 7 describes, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can you identify with that experience at all? What, um, what evil always seems to be close at hand in your life? Maybe it's something obvious like like uh, sexual temptation, or maybe um, a desire to just escape through food or drink or a drug. But maybe it's something more subtle, like chronic selfishness, anger, fear. Maybe the prideful temptation to measure and look down on other people. Whatever parasitic sin you've got, we all have access to the same cure. It's realizing that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then living by the Holy Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the evil things that feel so natural. You know how in in westerns or sci-fi movies or really any action movies, there's like this, um, this grizzled old veteran, like a gunfighter or some sort of Indiana Jones type adventurer. And he comes across as just mean but he's actually just he's just that he's super sober he's just so intense maybe he's like missing an eye or a limb i don't know but you know this guy has seen everything he's experienced everything and now he can sense trouble from a mile away and so while everyone else is just going on with their merry little lives chatting oblivious to the threat that's secretly closing in he notices something. He puts his hand on his gun. He pulls out his knife. And then he jarringly, like, puts an end to that evil that was creeping up on them. And everyone's like, whoa, what just happened? So we're called to be that grizzled old veteran. That's you in Christ. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So know the sin that stalks you. Be alert. Cast it off decisively and as often as you need to. Because if you don't, the outlook for your race doesn't look very good. If you're trying to run in this heavy, increasingly wet toga, you're going to fall on your face. You may never get up. So if you want to endure in trusting God, you have to cast off the sin that clings so closely. That's one of the hows of persevering in the faith. We can't be passive. We can't coddle our sin. But a second and even more fundamental how, how do we endure, 
is found in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The point of Hebrews ultimately isn't look to all these saints of the past. Chapter 11 was actually kind of a a tangential thought. You can skip straight from chapter 10 to chapter 12 and it'll still logically make sense. It was a detour to consider all these saints of the past. It is useful, um, but if I'm telling you how, how do we persevere in the faith, my final statement isn't look to other Christians around you or, or be inspired by people of the past. No, that's, that can be useful in as much as you are looking through them to Jesus. And he's the ultimate focus. And they help you to see Jesus more clearly. That's where chapter 11 comes in. Jesus is mentioned here for the first time since chapter 10, verse 19. That's a long gap. And I mean, faith in Jesus has been the subject throughout, right? But uh, this letter is just brilliantly crafted, and the author has that gap. And he, Because the effect that it has is that now, as he drops the name of Jesus, it's like he's emphasizing, don't you see the one who has walked this road more faithfully than anyone, the one who has done it all and seen it all, the one who not only inspires you, but is the founder and perfecter. He's the one who warrants your lasting gaze. So when we get too focused on our flaws and our failures, look to Jesus. When we get too puffed up, look to Jesus. When we lose the plot, when we're obsessing over trivial things, look to Jesus. When all we can hear is the opinions of others, or more likely what we're guessing is the opinions of others, look to Jesus. Think about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. Think about his many life-giving words of warning and promise. Keeping our eyes fixed on him, that's a secret. Not on ourselves, not on others around us. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus is the secret to the Christian life. Again, quoting John Owen, he writes in his work, The Glory of Christ, that The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, these lesser things will be expelled. So verse 2 particularly latches on to Christ's glory as the founder and perfecter of the faith. Founder means that he's the source of our salvation. He's our leader out of darkness and into light. He's the conqueror who through personal hand-to-hand combat opened the road from slavery into lasting freedom. Because he was faithful, we can be faithful. Jesus is also the perfecter of our faith. He alone makes our journey of faith complete. It's not that he did something and then he's like, good luck. You're on your own. Hope, hope I see you at the end. No, we are in his care. And when we fear our faith might fail, he will hold us fast. He's a finisher or completer of our pilgrimage. He not only won that decisive victory to set us on this path, he also fights our foes for us all the way to the celestial city. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And as we look to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, that's how that happens. From start to finish, Jesus is powerful and Jesus is sufficient to redeem us. Now, Jesus as perfecter of the faith, that also implies that he is the perfect example of endurance. And as we seek to endure in trusting him, we're invited to meditate on his faithful suffering 
and his subsequent exaltation. So first we're to remember that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And we've talked before about how, you know, if Jesus needed joy in the future to, to, to think about, to meditate on, in order to be faithful to what God had called him to, then you better believe we need that too. We need to, to see that future joy clearly if we're going to be faithful in, in bearing the cross that is appointed for us. But what was that joy that was set before Jesus? I don't know if we, we think about this as fully as we should sometimes. What was the joy before Jesus? Now, if you say, if you're, if you're thinking, well, we are, we're, we're his joy. Okay, hold on to that thought. But I, w- I want to think about some other joys that were set before Jesus also. First, his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. That was foremost in Jesus' devotion. Um, and, and one of the joys that Jesus mentions that he had during his ministry was the joy of pleasing the Father. Pleasing the Father. Knowing, knowing that the Father smiled on him because... He was doing the work that the Father had given him to do. In John chapter 4, his disciples were wondering why Jesus wasn't really into the food that, that they had brought him. And he says this funny thing. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So obedience to the Father is so satisfying to Jesus that sometimes he even forgets he's hungry. If you can imagine that. A second motivation for Jesus. So, so he's motivated by pleasing the Father. He's also motivated by being with the Father. Because once he's completed his earthly mission, he would ascend back to the Father's presence, and Jesus longed for that. Um, On the night before his arrest, his disciples heard him praying, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So these two joys, pleasing God and, and being with God, the Father in glory, these were paramount in the mind of Christ. They were even more important than us because Jesus is not an idolater. But certainly there were other joys to motivate Jesus as well. Um, think about through his finished work, all of creation would be restored, renewed. It had all been made through him in the beginning, and then he had to watch as curse and chaos descended and poisoned everything but through the cross god had a plan a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in christ things in heaven and on earth even the creation itself would be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god and that had to be a stunning reason for jesus to endure the cross and after we've kind of taken in that full scope of the work of Christ, then yes, it is true. We were also part of the joy that was set before him. Across the pages of scripture, the people of God are referred to as a bride. A bride, and you can imagine, um, Jesus came on his mission with all the fervor and devotion that any man would to win and rescue his bride and give her lasting joy. So he prayed for us in John 15. He prayed that we would be with him in his glory, that we would be wrapped into the unity that the Trinity has amongst themselves. And as Jesus staggered to the cross, Jesus was confident that a cleansed and a redeemed people would emerge to share that gladness with him forever. 
So all this and more was the joy set before Jesus. But how does that translate to our own endurance by faith? Some of it connects, some of it's different, right? But certainly we know that the Father loves us too. And he has ordained glory for us to share with him forever. Do you delight in pleasing the Father the way Jesus does? And when we read that, that it makes God happy, that we obey in, in a certain way, does that grab your attention? Does that, like, motivate you? Like, oh, I can make my Father smile. It's exciting. Or does knowing the things that the Father requires, does that only feel burdensome? When we understand the gospel rightly, we, we understand that it, it didn't just set us free from sin, but it also set us free to righteousness. We're made for this. We're made to please the Father. And when we do, it feels really good. I think everyone knows that, right? Like, you, we've all been children. Some of us are parents. You know that there's just this unique smile that comes across the Father when his children do what he asked them to without needing to be reminded. Now, doesn't he always love us? Yes, he always loves us as his children in Christ, but this is, it's something special when your kids just do what you ask them to without needing to be reminded, and, and that's why we need to trust him. We shouldn't always need to be reminded of his trustworthiness. He's proven it. He's shown it across the pages of our Bibles, across the pages of our lives. Let's put a smile on his face by walking in faith. So we also have the glory of an inheritance with Christ to look forward to. He's going to honor us. He's going to reward us. And we have the joy, also that same joy that Jesus had in creation being renewed. We have that to enjoy also, a recreated realm of justice and goodness and peace. We also have lasting, fulfilling community to look forward to. And I know all this can feel a bit hard to envision and to picture because after all, we haven't seen it before. We're not like Jesus who shared the Father's glory before time began, right? And that's kind of the wonder of the gospel, that there is this eternal joy going on. And it was so full within the Trinity that then it overflowed. And it's, it's drawing us in. And it's going to last forever. Psalm 16 says that in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So remember how Jesus considered the joy set before him, and then you consider the joy set before you, and endure to the very end. As Jesus endured the cross, we read that he also despised the shame. That doesn't mean that he hated the shame. I mean, I'm sure he did. I think that's just a given. Shame isn't pleasant, right? Um, the crucifixion is the, maybe the most shameful way to die. You're just hanging there naked in agony for hours. That's why the Romans didn't even use it on full Roman citizens. It was too shameful for them. They just kept it for outsiders. And certainly the Jewish people thought that the cross was incredibly shameful because in Deuteronomy it says that a man who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So the shame of it is a given. And Jesus didn't, he, he wasn't a masochist. He, he hated it. But that's not what it means here by he despised the shame. What it, what it means here is that um, he, um, he disregarded the shame. He, um, it didn't intimidate him. He wasn't bullied by the shame into giving up the path to the cross. He wasn't convinced by shame that he needed to quit. 
And our faith should look, should look very similar to that, right? Because if you fear people more than you fear God, then this, this road is not going to go well for you. So entrust your shame to God. Be willing to walk into shame when it is appointed. You can't control that. Entrust it to God and keep going. And our final meditation when we look to Jesus can be that he is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Endurance achieved, mission accomplished, joy forever won. He has power over all the universe. So is there any rational reason why we wouldn't trust him, why we wouldn't keep going through whatever obstacles and hardships? Yes, a hard struggle is appointed for us before we reach the end of this race, but you're surrounded by people across the globe, across time who have done this, and they tell you, it's worth it. So look to their testimonies, especially as found in the Bible. But look even more to Jesus himself. He won your salvation. He is with you throughout your journey. He is committed to bringing you all the way to perfect joy, belonging, and glory. So let's shake off those cramps. Ignore the shin splints. Let's get up from where we've fallen. Let's cast off whatever weights are holding us back. This is what we are made for. And won't it be amazing when we're there in glory? Maybe we'll see each other across the expanse and have a knowing smile on our faces. Like, huh, we did it. We live by faith to the very end. Praise be to God. God, we do praise you. We know that, that this life of faith is a miracle. And uh, we know that it, it's not achievable through our own strength, through our own goodness. So we do look to Jesus. We praise you that he is everything we need. And we ask that you would help us even now as we participate in the Lord's Supper, that we would meditate on that sufficiency of Christ even more. Amen.